And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that hearing from you through your word would not just be an, in any way an academic exercise, that, Father, it would not just be about knowing more, but, Father, it would be about being changed. Father, that wouldn't be about cleaning up some external behavior, but, Father, it would be about an internal cleansing of our hearts. That, Father, you would cause us to be encouraged and to- turn towards you more in faith. That, Father, you would cause us to be convicted and so desire to put sin to death all the more in our lives by your grace. Father, we ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. Given the chance, how would you defend Christianity? How would you account for the Christian church and its mission? How would you defend the practice of evangelism in an age swallowed up in political correctness and pluralistic worldviews gone mad? How would you do that? Well, this morning, as we arrive at our text in our series on the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has been in prison in Caesarea now for just over two years. He has given a defense of his life and ministry before Governor Felix. Now, Felix has been removed and sent back to Rome because he's been uh, an uh, ineffective governor. Now, Governor Festus has been appointed in his place. He's just now given his defense to Festus, who, in a shrewd political move, decided not to offend the Jews or leave Paul's case up in the air any longer than it needed to be, according to Roman law, and he offered to let Paul be tried in Jerusalem. This, of course, would have meant certain death for Paul because uh, we know because Luke tells us and we know because Paul's, uh, Paul knows because Paul's nephew told him there was a plot by the Jews in Jerusalem to kill him. And so leaving the Roman custody and going to Jerusalem would have meant certain death. It would have meant assassination before he even arrived. So not surprisingly, Paul turned that offer down and appealed, as a Roman citizen could, to have his case heard before Caesar himself in Rome. And so now Paul is about to be sent to Rome. But in the providence of God, King Agrippa II is making a visit to Caesarea, and he decides he wants to hear all about this case involving Paul before he is sent to Rome. To give you some context, Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the Roman king of the region, Uh, this region uh, that Paul is in, when Jesus was born. And he's fascinated by this case because, though politically, Agrippa is a loyal Roman through and through, ethnically, he is part Jewish. And so here, Agrippa not only sees an intriguing case involving Jewish law, but perhaps also an opportunity to ingratiate himself to the Jews, to Festus, or maybe even the emperor himself. And of course, Festus is welcoming of Agrippa coming and hearing this case because he's about to send Paul off to Rome and there's no case. There's no case against Paul. No charge has been able to stick. There's nothing that he is remotely guilty of and frankly, he doesn't know what to do. And so he says, absolutely, Agrippa, come and hear the case and see what you think. And so this is where our story begins as we begin reading Acts chapter 25, beginning at verse 13. 
Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against them. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding him, regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him, therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Paul has been told that he will speak before Agrippa and he comes out to see all of the pomp, all of the circumstance, all of the flowing banners, all of the things that would have been associated with King Agrippa. But furthermore, and more importantly for Paul, as he looks into the audience hall around him, he sees in Luke's words all of the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Every major political player, every major military and civic leader has been gathered before Agrippa to hear what Paul would say to them. And Paul sees here a tremendous opportunity for the gospel. And so as instructed, he begins to give his defense of Christianity. He lays out his own testimony explaining why it is that he goes from city to city to city, enduring hardship and illegal charges, all to tell people about a Jewish peasant that was raised from the dead and now stands as king in heaven. And this is what he says in chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death I cast my vote against them. 
And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I speak to him boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and all those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. May God bless the reading of his word. From Paul's speech, this lengthy speech, this defense of Christianity, I want us to see four essential elements of Christianity. They form the essentials not only of our own personal story as individual Christians, but they stand at the core of our beliefs in our mission as the body of Christ. And so, so what we're going to see here then is not just us as individuals. We're going to see through the testimony of Paul something that we share. But more than that, through their own individual testimony, we're going to see essentially the basic framework, the large picture of Christianity as a whole. If you want to know about Christianity, it is here in Paul's speech. And so four truths that we want to see this morning. The first is this. Christians experience a sinful beginning. Christians experience a sinful beginning. Paul begins his defense of Christianity by describing how he grew up and was trained to be a Pharisee. He says, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. You see, Paul grew up in a religious environment, and not just any religious environment, though. Paul didn't have a nominal 
religious experience. He didn't just go to the synagogue every once in a while, give his offering and think everything was okay. No, he was zealous in his beliefs. He worked hard at his religion, at being pious, even to the point of persecuting those he believed were heretics. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but they, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Kill them, Paul said. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Paul didn't just round up the obvious Christians. He nabbed their friends too. And did you catch this? He tried to make them blaspheme. What does that mean, I wonder? He tried to make them blaspheme. Did he torture them? And the whole while he's living this life, Paul didn't see any problem with it. He said, I was convinced this is what God wanted me to do. Do you see how deceptive sin can be? Paul thought he was okay. Not just okay, but that he was doing the right thing. He was so deceived that he believed open and obvious sin was in fact righteousness before God. And we need to understand that was the beginning of the greatest apostle in the church of God. We can look at others as well. We can look at Peter. We can look at James. We can look at ourselves. We can look at people like Billy Graham or Martin Luther, whose life and work we celebrated. But over and over again, what we would see in all of their lives is the same truth. They all started out as sinners. They all began as sinners. Earlier, as he was writing to the Romans, Paul reminded the Christians of Psalm 14, None is righteous. No, not one not even Paul himself. Every Christian begins, like every other person in the world, a sinner. There's no special class of people. There's no special ethnic background that makes you a Christian. Whether you're raised in church or not, you begin, like everyone else, a sinner condemned by God justly for your sins. And one of the motivations that should lead us Christians to share Christ is the realization the people we're talking to are just the same as we once were, lost and without hope for the future and for salvation. There's nothing special about us. There's nothing that makes us worthy of salvation. We were sinners too. And that should not only humble us in our walk with God and our efforts in evangelism, but it should also help us to, to at least mentally and perhaps in our speech and our actions build a bridge to those that we would share Christ with making it easier to tell them of the forgiveness that we have embraced through Christ. If we are able to say, you know, I was once just like you. I lived that same kind of life and I found something better. I found something that brought me so much more joy, so much more happiness, but more important than anything else, it brought me a right standing before God. How much more would they be willing to listen to what we have to say? Just as we are now accepted by God because of Christ's death for us, they can be accepted and forgiven as well. All of us have experienced a sinful beginning. But as Christians, we've also responded to a divine calling. This is the second truth that we want to see this morning. Christians respond to a divine calling. Paul says, God didn't leave me the way that I was. He did not leave me a murderer 
slaying his people. God didn't leave me in that sinful state of misguided belief, persecuting Christians. He called me out of it. For the third time in Acts, Paul relates his testimony of being converted from persecuting Christians to worshiping as a Christian. He says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone all around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now you say, what in the world is a goad? Well, if you're on a farm, you know what a goad is. One of the ways to, to prod and move cattle was to, to sharpen wood or, or some other kind of metal and to use those things to stick into the cattle to get them to move in the right direction. And it was a, it was a common proverb, a common bit of wisdom to say, it's hard to kick against the goats. What does that mean? It means if you try and, and buck against it and go the opposite direction, what's the herdsman going to do? He's going to drive that goat in even harder, isn't he? He's going to get you where he wants you to go. Just so the Lord says, why? Why do you continue not to believe? You've heard after what you believe to be blaspheming people, testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony, that I am the Lord. You have heard the gospel. Why do you persist in your unbelief, Paul? And Paul asked him, who are you, Lord? And Luke says, the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And you, you have to... You have to try and comprehend how devastating that would have been for Paul. I mean, I mean, that would have been. You ever, you ever get that with the wind just totally knocked out of you, and you're just desperate to get air back in your lungs, and you're just gasping. Imagine that kind of sensation of Paul, but not just some physical gasping, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally. The whole purpose, the whole purpose, per person gasping, trying to to refine his footing. You see, he's been persecuting Christians because of Jesus. They followed him, claiming him to be the Messiah and God in the flesh. They claimed he died for sinners and was raised to life again. And Paul has rejected all of that and believed Jesus to be nothing more than a heretical, delusional son of a carpenter who is still dead. And now Jesus is standing before him, blazing with the eternal glory of the living God. That same glory that would have shone out of the Holy of Holies in the temple. That same glory that, that bathed Moses so that his face continued to glow after he went out of the presence of the glory of the Lord. That same glory that brought Isaiah down to his knees in the temple, showing him, compelling him, making him feel as if he was undone because of his sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. That same glory was now shining forth from a risen Jesus who was not dead but was standing resurrected. And now all that Paul thought was a lie, he knew was true. Jesus was alive and he was the Lord of glory. But that resurrected Lord was not finished with Paul. He went on to say, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
though ours will surely not be as dramatic as Paul. All of us who claim to be Christians have a calling on our lives just as Paul did. We are called not just to be his servants, but also to be his witnesses. We are not just called to use our abilities and our gifts and our resources for his kingdom, but also to open our mouths and proclaim his truth, to proclaim the saving power of God and the atoning death of Christ on the cross. That's God's calling on our life. But we have to stop and say, are we obeying it, Christians? Are we obeying it? Like Paul, can we honestly say, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly call on my life. If you can say that, then you will know. Thirdly, Christians proclaim an ancient message. Christians proclaim an ancient message. I think Paul must have found it very ironic that the reason he is charged with crimes is not for persecuting anyone as before, but simply for proclaiming a message. And it's ironic that he's put on trial by his own people, the Jewish people, because his message is, in fact, a thoroughly Jewish message. It's the ultimate Jewish message. He says, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, Jewish fathers, to which our 12 tribes, 12 tribes of the Jewish people, hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Paul wants us to understand he is not the inventor of a new religion. He says, I stand here testifying both to great and small, nothing, saying nothing, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The Christian message is an ancient message. It began just after creation itself, when God made a promise to Adam and Eve that he would redeem all of creation from their sin through one of their descendants. That message was so precious to them and their children, they continued to long for that redeemer, for that person who would rescue them from the sinful corruption of all of creation that they brought through their own disobedience. So when you read of Noah being born, there is the hope that he is going to be the Savior that he will bring rest from the curse, but he wasn't. And over time, God continued to reveal more and more of that message of his plan of redemption for not just his people, but for the entire world through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the giving of the law through Moses, God continued to speak and explain his plan. And then through the prophets, and finally that last prophet of the old covenant, John the Baptist, God revealed that his plan centered on his own son who would endure and satisfy his wrath against sin. And by the death of his own son, Jesus Christ, God would reconcile himself to the world. That's the same message we proclaim today. It's the same message that's been given generation after generation after generation after generation. It's become expanded. It's become fuller. We know more about it now that Christ has come. But it's nothing new. It's nothing new. Real Christians do not invent new messages. It simply proclaims the same ancient message. It may be slightly repackaged for different audiences, but once you unwrap the thing, what lies beneath is the same gospel truth as always before. At least it should be. Earlier this week, I was reading about an article that appeared in the Los Angeles Times about Robert Schuller and the awkward and uneasy handover to his son for 
his Hour of Power television show and ministry. You know who Schuller is, right? The Crystal Cathedral. It was said one time that um, he was uh, about to be martyred in South America. And they said, do you have any last words? And he said, long live Windex. Now, that, that really didn't happen. But, but uh, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, you might expect. But the reason why the Times said this handover was so uneasy, you know, he was wanting to retire. He'd been, he's been running this thing for a long time. He's wanting to retire. He's going to hand it over to his oldest son uh, who had been preaching for him. And the Los Angeles Times said that, uh, in case you didn't know, that the older, the older Shuler now took it back away from his son and said, no, you're not going to have it. And the Times said the reason why was because the son preached too much Bible. Now that's a secular paper observing that. The son preached too much Bible. And so the father said, no, we're not going in that direction. You see, back in 1982, the elder Schuler published a ministry manifesto called Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. And in that book, he argued that the evangelical church had lost sight of the true message of the gospel, a message of self-esteem. And he castigated Biblical preaching and called for a therapeutic gospel. Al Mohler explains, The main thrust of the book was a call for a new reformation that would replace the gospel as preached for the churches with a new message of self-esteem. Along the way, Schuller redefined sin and salvation, abandoning biblical definitions for those he found in positive thinking, modern secular psychology, and the new thought tradition. You see, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity because he, he's bringing a new message. And Christianity, real Christianity says, we proclaim nothing new. We have nothing new in a bag of tricks. We have no rabbit we can pull out of our hat. We have nothing but what has always been proclaimed, that same message that Christ crucified saves sinners. That's all we've got. It's an ancient message. Paul says it's the same message that the prophets proclaim, that all the Old Testament promises that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's our message folks. That's our message. It's Christ. Christ who was crucified for the sins of his people. Christ who was raised back to life as the Lord of all things. Christ who through the spreading of the gospel gives people spiritual life. That's our message, salvation in Christ alone. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our self-esteem. It's not in other religions. It's not in social justice. And that's why we must believe in Christ ourselves and why we must proclaim Christ to others. That's what Christianity is all about. And that's why, lastly, Christians expect divine salvation. Christians expect divine salvation. Paul was called to proclaim the message of the risen Christ. He was called to proclaim his atoning death and his triumphant resurrection back to life. The intended effect of that preaching, he says, will be to open sinners' eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what salvation is all about. It's moving from the kingdom of sin and spiritual darkness into the kingdom of God and spiritual life. When we look to Christ in faith, God saves us by his own wrath, by forgiving our sins in Jesus. He looks to his death, his sacrifice, as the satisfaction of his righteous fury against us and our sin. The result of that forgiveness is that we are called out of this world. Paul says we are given a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In Christ, we are joined together in a spiritual community that God calls the church. 
And that's what God promises to do when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul believed this. In fact, he banked his entire life on it. Not just for his own salvation, but for the salvation of others as well. That's why he says, as soon as I was converted, as soon as Christ brought me from spiritual darkness to spiritual light, as soon as he took me out of the kingdom of Satan and sin and put me in his kingdom of righteousness, I began to preach the gospel. He says, I was not obedient to the heavenly vision, verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You see, Paul had this radical idea that God would actually keep his word. Isn't that amazing? God would actually keep his promise. And that if Paul, if he simply proclaimed the gospel... If he simply preached Christ as the atoning sacrifice for sins, and that now he has gloriously been resurrected and is Lord of all things, if he simply preached that, God would save people. God would call them out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. That was the great driving desire of Paul's life, was to see God save sinners. That they would come to worship not, not a, a dead guy hanging on a cross, the guy who died for the sins of the world and was raised back to life again as Lord of all things. That's at this point that Festus interrupts him. He had had enough and he yells out, Paul, you're out of your mind! Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And you can imagine, you know, Luke is there. Luke is sitting in that great audience and he is, he is, taking, he is taking notes with the parchment and the quill. And he's listening to Paul and he's, he's jotting down the notes so that he can compile this record that we have called Acts. And suddenly Festus jumps up and says, you're out of your mind. You can imagine Luke looking over like, I didn't see that coming. And it kind of all eyes turn to attention and then Festus stops and just, you know, heffing. And, 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 Luke, and Luke turns back to Paul. What's Paul going to say? Is he going to get mad? Now calm and collected. He says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul uses this as an opportunity. He stands before the king of this region, the highest ruling official there. One who knows the scriptures as a Jew. And he presses home the call to repent. He knows he knows the scriptures. He knows the promises of the Messiah. But will he trust in him now for salvation? And isn't this amazing? Isn't it? It should be a comfort and encouragement to us to know that the, all these things are true. Paul has the audacity to stand before the king and say, Come on, king. These things didn't happen in a corner. These things didn't happen in a back alley. You know they're true. You've seen these things. You've heard the testimony. You know we're not making these things up. These events really happened. You know that they were prophesied by our prophets, by our people, by our God. Believe, king, please, believe. But for the king, it was a no-win situation. If he says he doesn't know the scriptures, he loses face with the Jews. If he says he does know them, then he's forced to admit that Paul is right. That Christ is the Messiah and fulfills them. So he evades Paul's call for repentance and faith in a mocking question of his own. In a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian, Paul? Do you really think one talk is all it's going to take, Paul? 
but it's an opportunity for Paul's heart to be revealed. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul says, it is my earnest desire, whether it takes just a few moments in during this talk, or whether it takes the totality of my life, that everyone listening to my voice would be just like me, except these chains. In other words, not that they would be a prisoner, that they would have salvation in Christ, that they would have a confidence, a knowledge, a saving knowledge of the risen Lord. Paul says his sincere hope is that all who hear the gospel will believe. Paul expects God to save sinners. That's what he said he would do. And so that's why he proclaims the gospel with passion. Christians, what about us? What about us? Do we think the gospel is outdated? Have we lost our confidence in God? If not, then where is our passion? Where is our zeal? Where is the kind of driving life that was in Paul's life? That kind of deep desire to make the gospel known to all people. You know, it's not just enough to throw money at the problem. It's not just enough to say, we support missionaries, we're involved in gospel work. No, that's good. Keep doing that. But God may one day call you to go and to be a missionary. But until he does, the call for you to be a witness is still on your life. Whether it's in Bay City or Saginaw or wherever it is you live, if you are a Christian, the call is not just to be God's servant, but also to be his witness. To open your mouth, just like Paul, and proclaim the gospel. Trusting, believing, confident that through that proclamation, God will save sinners. God will bring forgiveness and spiritual life to those who are enslaved to sin and are only going to experience spiritual death. Peter Cameron Scott was a gifted young vocalist, a singer, who was on the steps of the opera house ready to pursue a career as a singer, going into a major performance when God challenged him. He says he believed that God spoke to him and said, Will you seek a life of self-glory and applause and applause in the entertainment world? Or will you dedicate your life to my service? He decided to dedicate his life to God's service. He obeyed God's call. He trained for missionary service. And at 23, he sailed to Africa. Within a few months, his brother joined him. But the harsh African climate, the environment that became known as the white man's graveyard, took its toll. His brother died. And when he did, Peter alone built a crude coffin, dug the grave, and buried his brother. And as he was alone standing over his grave, he did not lose heart, but recommitted himself to preach the gospel in Africa. But then his own health failed. And he left Africa for a time, going to England, and then back to the United States in an effort to recruit others to the cause of missions in Africa. And in 1895, at age 28, he established the African Inland Mission, a missionary sending organization. But just 14 months after he and his team had landed on African soil, Scott himself fell ill and died. After his death, the mission nearly failed as one after another of the workers died. By the summer of 1899, only one missionary remained on the field. But he persisted. And 10 years after the mission's founding, there were 31 missionaries on the field. In those early years, more missionaries died than people came to Christ. But still, more missionaries came. And they came not with trunks, but with coffins packed with their goods. 
the Africans were amazed at such determination. And they said, surely only a message of great importance would inspire such actions. By 1971, there were a million and a half members in the African Inland Church. Friends, do you believe the gospel message? Do you live in such a way that people look at you and say, there's got to be something about Christ because of the driving passion, fervency that I see in that person's life when they speak of him. All that they do is driven by a desire to honor him and to glorify him and to tell others about him. Therefore, I must know about him. Loved ones, those missionaries were no different than us. They were fallible, sinful people, but they understood their calling in life. They understood that a call to be saved is a call to serve God with our lives and to be a witness for him. It might be in Africa, but in the meantime, it's here. It's here. So this, for the sake of our city, for the sake of God's glory, let us fulfill our call and be witnesses for Christ in this place. Let's pray.